Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today, how do ceasefires work, and what happens when they don't? And what effect are economic sanctions from the West really having on Russia? This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Five days a week... My colleagues alongside me in the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground are bringing you the latest news and analysis on the fast-moving crisis in Ukraine. It's day 12, and today I'm joined by the Telegraph's defence and security editor, Dominic Nichols, and our deputy foreign editor, Theo Merz. So I think we should start by just doing a bit of a roundup of the weekend. Tom and Theo, what are the most important military and diplomatic updates over the weekend and into Monday? Hi, David. Hi, everybody. Um, There was actually very, very little military movement on the ground over the weekend, and that in itself is worth dwelling on for for just a moment. So we're now at day 12 of this war, and the the Russian machine has has been ground to a halt now for for well over a week, and that is just staggering considering the size and and what we thought the the Russian forces were capable of. So the fact that that there's not been an awful lot of ground movement is is notable. Um, Away from that, in, in the air... Russia had a, 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 a terrible weekend. Um, estimates vary, but it looks like there's, there's up to about a dozen aircraft that have been lost, uh, fighter jets and, and helicopters. And there could be a couple of reasons for this. It might be, um, it's been suggested that the Russians are running out of precision-guided munitions. So they're having to come uh, lower uh, in order to fire unguided munitions to try and take on Ukrainian forces. And if they're lower, then they're more susceptible to surface-to-air missiles and uh, and other munitions. There's also the suggestion that because the these uh, ground columns are fixed and uh, literally um, not going anywhere, and the Ukrainians are are doing a great job uh, of attacking the logistic uh, and f- uh, convoys, uh, particularly the sort of fuel elements, so the, the tanks and other armoured vehicles at the front of the column aren't, aren't able to move, that some of these columns are now getting air cover in terms of uh, armed helicopters. So again, they are known routes, lower, generally slower, uh, predictable, uh, and uh, and we've seen over the weekend um, uh, an MI, MI-24 very, you know, you shouldn't take any pleasure in this at all, but you know, very uh, graphic display of what can happen when surface-to-air missiles are used against uh, against helicopters. So that's that's basically it from on the sort of tactical side. Other things to note are the sort of more strategic. Today, the Kremlin spokesman has said the military actions could halt, quote, in a moment, which is very good of them, to halt in a moment, provided Ukraine agreed to a number of things, which is firstly to cease military action, to change their constitution so that they, they would always be neutral, not join NATO, uh, acknowledge the loss of Crimea and recognise the, the uh, Donetsk and Luhansk 
republics. It's already been already been um, dismissed out of hand by the Ukrainians. It's just interesting that Russia come come up with these suggestions, and we'll touch on this a little bit later when we talk about ceasefires. But just on that on that statement alone, I mean, very interesting language. So, what are they happy that there's there's Nazis that are in charge as long as they say they're not going to join NATO? I mean, the, the it just absolutely puts to bed this idea of any kind of this ridiculous notion of of this term, the denazification of Ukraine. It was just it was ridiculous at the time. We know it is, is now, and uh, and just amusing that they've dropped that. Um, but we'll come back to ceasefires and, and what have you a little bit later. Yeah, absolutely. Theo, do you want to come in on that? Yeah, I, th- I think the interesting thing about that uh, statement from the, the Kremlin this morning, from Dmitry Peskov, uh, Vladimir Putin's spokesman, is it's the first time, really, that we have specific points of what Russia now wants from Ukraine. And it seems to be it seems to be quite a significant de-escalation because as as Dom has mentioned, when this war, when this invasion started 12 days ago, all Putin said was this is a special military operation aimed at the uh, demilitarization and denazification of Ukraine, this idea that the government is sort of run by Nazis or, or supports Nazis, which is ridiculous, but is the line pushed on on Russian state media, but there wasn't any suggestion of what the Kremlin actually wanted. Did it want regime change, as British intelligence has, some British intelligence has suggested? Does it want part of Ukraine? Does it want an occupation, direct rule of Ukraine, recognition of these separatist republics in the east of the country? So this is the first time that demands have actually been laid out, and that may be a a step in the right direction. It's obviously too early to say that either way yet, but just that there is something concrete on the table is very interesting and an important development for today. Just a question from me to you both. Why are there sort of parallel negotiations going on? We've got Dmitry Kuleba, Ukrainian foreign minister, meeting uh, Sergei Lavrov in Turkey, and we've still got the, the talks in Belarus. What, what, why would be, there be a sort of multi-level negotiations going on? Theo? I don't know. I mean, these, these negotiations that are happening in Belarus are... Sergei Lavrov, the, the Russian foreign minister, has, has not been involved in that. So this is a... Um, the, the meeting that you're talking about in Turkey, I think, is um, due to happen on... On Thursday, there's obviously a lot that can that can change before then, and that will be the first meeting between the Ukrainian foreign foreign minister Kuleba and Lavrov since this began. So it seems like that will be a, a higher level and perhaps more opportunity to to make some decisions or process or uh, sort of progress towards decisions than there are currently in these talks happening in Belarus at the moment between Russian and. Ukrainian negotiating teams, which seem to be doing very little. Tom Nichols, you wanted to come in on that. The other thing to to think about there with the with these negotiations is the fact that uh, all wars end. Very very few wars end in a military complete military defeat of one side by the other. Um, so most wars end by negotiation, and therefore you've got to start talking at some point. So if you are talking already, and you, and you can take a view on whether or not you think these. Uh, meetings that have happened so far have been a bit of a sham or a bit, you know, a bit of a you know, just for the cameras or, or what have you but but at least they're there at least they're happening and the more you can talk that's good because they, they those talks might lead somewhere now 
The flip side of that is whether or not these talks or any talks are used as a negotiating bargain in, in their own right, just to buy time to allow forces on the ground to get into a more better position in terms of negotiations, a stronger hand to play. Um, so you've got to look at it both ways and actually have a think about well, who, in whose interest is it now to, to delay an end to the fighting? You know, is it in, in, in Ukraine's or Russia's? Because there, there are pros and cons to both sides. And again, we will touch on this shortly when we talk about ceasefires. But in terms of talks, you know, talking is always better than, than fighting. You do, you do need, you do need uh, a, bit of, a bit of both, arguably, before you come to a, a negotiating table. But um, it is good to start the talks at, at some point, whether or not they, they see uh, seemingly futile or not. It's, it's always better to start by sitting down together because um, that's in more cases and more often than not, that's where you're going to end up. So let's move on a little bit. We saw some truly horrific stories from Erpin on the outskirts of Kiev and Mariupol in the south over the weekend with uh, Russian troops I think, shelling humanitarian corridors. Dom and uh, Thea, would you talk a little bit about what, what happened here? And I think that will lead us into talking about, Dom, what I think you, you mean when we talk about the ceasefires. Yeah, the, the, it's Theo here. The, the main story over the weekend were these failed humanitarian corridors out of Mariupol in the, in the south and other cities in, in Ukraine. The Russian and Ukrainian side had apparently agreed or had agreed to establish these humanitarian corridors so that civilians could could evacuate safely. And in in all cases up to now, that had failed because of Russian shelling, because Russia didn't respect these these agreements. Though the Russian side have said it's um, the Ukrainians that that led to the breakdown. But the upshot of this is people have have died in in Irpin yesterday on the outskirts of Kiev, trying to get out of a town under fire and um, and get to safety. And in in Mariupol and elsewhere, it, it has meant that civilians haven't been able to evacuate. And um, Russia has been accused of negotiating those humanitarian corridors in in bad faith. Uh, Why exactly it hasn't respected them, we don't know, though the the UK has said it's because they believe um, that Russia has used it as a chance to to regroup their forces after they negotiated a, a ceasefire. So using that in a in a cynical way, as as one minister put it to uh, put it today. There's also this idea um, on on Russian state media. They they're talking a lot about the Ukrainians using their civilian population as human shields. Um, obviously, that gives a, a really negative impression of the Ukrainians and helps with the the propaganda effort and drumming up public support for this aggression in Ukraine. And um, if these humanitarian corridors fail, then that sort of plays into that. The Kremlin is able to say, listen, we negotiated a humanitarian corridor. We wanted all the civilians out of there and the Ukrainian side didn't let it happen. So they obviously want the civilians there so that we don't attack these legitimate targets. Dominic. Yeah, I'll just add to that. When when you look at a ceasefire, I mean, there's a number of issues going on with a ceasefire. Uh, unfortunately, only one part of it, one small part of it, perhaps, is anyone's great concern for the civilian population. I mean, you'd hope that would be front and centre, but there's a lot more, a lot more going on. And we'll just just dwell on it just for a second. So, I mean, we think about a ceasefire, and certainly in in kind of British culture, we have this image of of all the guns uh, stopping. Someone finds a football and we all rush out into no man's land and uh, for a kickabout you know ally the first world war well unfortunately it's not it's not really like that i mean very broadly there are three 
kind of parties to a ceasefire. There's the two belligerents, and then there's the the civilians in, in the middle. And by civilians, let's include the international, the will of the international community, and those organisations that want to, want to go and help. So, for example, the International Committee of the Red Cross or the OSCE, the Organisation for Security and Cooperation in Europe. So, there's kind of three three big a- actors here, and they all have overlapping concerns and priorities and so on and so forth so there's a there's a huge variety of what people expect to get from it and how much effort they're willing to put into getting the same outcome from it and as Theo said ceasefires can be used to just pause to allow people to recover uh, dead and wounded to get civilians out of the um, out of the area but it's also also can be used to by the forces to regroup and rearm and a lot of it comes down to actually negotiating these ceasefires and and saying what they will be used for and where they are i mean have the russians and the, and the ukrainians got the same maps do they know exactly the same roads do they know what they're talking about when they say when they talk about safe safe passage and safe corridors and then of course overriding it all is the law of self-defense so it's entirely legitimate for um the military or you know soldiers to to fire if they're in self-defense if they feel they're lives are under under threat even while while there's a ceasefire so um this can be used to uh, you know for all sorts of um purposes to break a ceasefire or to to not not stick up with the the ideals that you, that you said you would do um and you can at least a bogus claims of military targets well i was only firing because there was a, a legitimate military target over there that i thought was was firing back at me and of course it's always it's always um civilians or generally civilians that that that, that are um that come off worse in all this and we saw those horrific pictures from the weekend of, of what can happen so in any of these uh, ceasefires or the talks that we mentioned earlier You've got to ask if they're, if they're genuine attempts to, to do the right thing or attempt to gain the moral high ground in the eyes of the international community, uh, in some ways um, suggesting a ceasefire or agreeing to talks could be a sign that it's you and your munificence, in your, so, so powerful is your position that you will allow these, uh, these things to happen. I mean, that, that in, its, in itself might be trying to send a message to the other side. But the UK MOD, interestingly, put out a statement on Saturday uh, and I'll quote from it here directly. It said, Russia's proposed ceasefire in Mariupol was likely an attempt to deflect international condemnation while resetting forces for renewed offensive activity. By accusing Ukraine of breaking the agreement, Russia is likely seeking to shift responsibility for current and future civilian casualties in the city. And that's the end of the quote from the, from the UK MOD. So ceasefires are um, very, very difficult things to negotiate. They are loaded with with different aspirations and issues from from all sides and as always it's the civilians in the in the middle that uh, that get the worst of it thanks Tom. that was that was very very interesting just a couple of things i think before we move on to talking about the economy uh dom nichols you said that there's not much not been much military movement over the weekend aside from heavy losses in the russian air force and i think we were all seeing you know continuing pictures coming out of things like russian armored cars and tanks being being attacked and destroyed i, I was just struck by something that thea mentioned and what both of you have mentioned about the how this campaign was originally to de- de- to demilitarize ukraine but if we carry on like this it looks like it's going to demilitarize the the Russian armed forces. I mean, how long can how long can the Russian armed forces hold on, or or you know keep supplied and keep being a threat if if this if this loss of armor continues? Well, this this is a point that many people are asking now because this war, this more makes no sense whatsoever to to most people looking at it. You could argue that Russia has lost the war already in terms of what what does it want to achieve. It's not going to get Ukraine to, to never sign up to NATO, etc., etc. We've gone over this ground many, many times. 
but it, it also hasn't got the forces there to to occupy a country the size of Ukraine. So what what is it trying to do? And arguably, it's just not in any position. It's never been in a position to meet the objectives that it has stated it it wants to. So where are we moving to now? The, the Russian army is being humiliated, and in an article that's that's coming out hopefully tomorrow, senior. Military people are using the word humiliated. The Russian army is being humiliated on the battlefield. The Ukrainian armed forces are putting up an amazing resistance. Uh, they've been blooded by eight years fighting in the Donbass and their experience in Crimea. And, and, it's, and it's not going the way that Russia expected. Now, that is, that is uh, I would suggest you take cautious optimism from that because what does that mean? If Putin gets backed into a corner, then we could be in a very, very different situation in, in a week's time. Or in a month's time, however long it's going to take. So we should take, we should watch with great interest and hope that U- Ukrainian forces are able to, yeah, repel the invaders to their territory. But equally, what does that mean? What and what? What is Putin going to do if he if he if he backs out? Is he going to try and inflict as much damage and pain as he can if it's going to end in military defeat, or is he going to seek to take the war wider? This is this is not like Afghanistan where. Russia were defeated in Afghanistan because they left in place a compliant or a client regime which everybody knew wasn't going to be able to stand on its own two feet and sure enough within a couple of years it had fallen but they withdrew or whatever they however they described it you know tactically you know move reassign their forces or what have you but it was it was a defeat everyone knew that but they could they could claim some sort of safe uh, or you know face saving measure but uh, yeah ultimately led to the, the collapse of the Soviet Union so if this is anywhere like that, and it, and it doesn't look like it because there's not going to be a client regime left in place, this is going to be a, a staggering military defeat for Putin. And that will have domestic consequences for him. And therefore, he's not going to allow that to happen or he will, having, having exerted a massive price for that. So I think we're entering a very, very dangerous time now when we see quite how important this is to, to Russia and quite what Putin is prepared to do to not have this defeat handed to him. A shuttered stock market close to default, business boycotts and a rush to the cash machines. The Russian economy is on its knees after a wave of economic sanctions from the West. But if Russia is forced to lean less on the West economically, where will they turn? And what will that mean for all of us? To answer that question, I'm going to bring in our acting business features editor, Louise Moon. Louise, what's standing out for you after the latest sanctions aimed at the Kremlin? I mean, the main thing that everyone's eyes are on are kind of the hit to Russia's domestic economy. And then on a more individual level, it's, you know, the changing lives of Russian citizens from all these sanctions and being cut off in many ways from the West. But I think the key question kind of going forward is, is what's next and the uncertainty of what will happen, particularly in relation to oil and to energy. So it's kind of the the hit that's happened so far, but then how much further can that go on their economy, really? So what would you say given what's happened, what, what is the strategic thinking behind the sanctions? What, what is the West trying to do? Well, I mean, I think the key idea is not only to hit Russia's economy and kind of get to Putin in that way, but also to hit ordinary citizens and the oligarchs way of life in a way in the hope, especially for the oligarchs in the hope that eventually that might break support for Putin and therefore stop his actions. And that's been seen already in many ways in terms of the impact on ordinary citizens. You know, you've had tech companies pull out across the whole spectrum from payments. So Visa and MasterCard have both pulled out, which means that 
services such as Apple Pay and Google Pay aren't working. Um, you've had entertainment companies, so Netflix have said, um, I think it was just this morning, they said that no new customers could sign up. TikTok is suspending live streaming. Offices are closing in more um, high-end professions such as KPMG, PwC, a bunch of law firms. Travel's obviously been massively affected. The EU, the UK, the US, Canada have all banned Russian air traffic. You know, shops are putting out. So there is a massive impact on everyday citizens' lives. And I think that is part of the aim, really, and attempt to kind of break down Putin from that end. Could we talk quickly about oil and gas, a very important export for the Russian Federation? How far have sanctions affected them? So, so far, there's been no official kind of country level oil or gas or commodities sanctions. And as as these are such a big part of Russia's economy, they get a lot of money and funding from that, that essentially introducing sanctions on them essentially would reduce funding for the war. So in terms of oil and gas, I mean, there have been reports so far of oil traders and oil companies on a kind of more company or individual level, not trading Russian oil. But as I said, on a country level, those sanctions haven't happened. There have been discussions from the US and the EU that they are exploring a ban of Russian oil imports. And I think also Japan is in talks about a possible ban. Places like Denmark has said it will phase out its dependence. So that is looking more likely. And to do that would be would be kind of, I mean, an absolutely huge thing. So Europe relies on Russia for 40% of its oil and natural gas. And the US obviously imports a huge amount as well. So cutting off those not only would it affect their own economy, but it would also be be a huge impact on Russia. And I think, I mean, the reasons that hasn't been done yet, the reasons that hasn't been sanctioned imposed is because it would have a, a huge effect on the global market. I mean, the global energy market is already under huge pressure. So to do that would accentuate that hugely. I mean, energy prices would soar, which they are already doing. But they, I mean, that could go even further. And then as that has an impact on people's everyday lives, you know, in the US and in in Europe paying for that. But there's also the fear that Putin could then retaliate by cutting off supplies. So there hasn't been any any sanctions on those oil, gas or commodities yet, but that is definitely a discussion, but that does have huge implications. And um, what's the reaction of of China and and India been towards these sanctions? I mean, primarily these these sanctions are coming from what we call the West, um, with, as you mentioned, Japan and some other countries. But uh, how has China reacted economically to the war? I mean, it came out overnight that Russia is going to start using Chinese banking systems. So Sberbank and Alpha Bank, two huge Russian banks, are planning to use China's union pay to provide customers bank cards. That is because, as I mentioned earlier, because Visa and MasterCard have pulled out. So in some sense, that shows Russia potentially leaning more economically on China and it could show potentially, depending how far that goes, on Moscow and Beijing kind of challenging the dominance of Western banking infrastructure, which is, if that happened, I mean, that would be a huge move. Theo Merz, I don't know if you want to come in on this and just talk a little bit about the political implications of, of China starting to underpin the, the Russian banking system. Yeah, well, the, the political side of that is that obviously China and Russia are allies. Uh, Xi Jinping and um, President Putin have a good personal relationship. She has described Putin as his, his best friend in the past, and they've certainly been cooperating more and more in recent years. And today, the the Chinese foreign minister underlined that the friendship between the two countries is rock solid, as he put it. 
Though that said, Beijing hasn't explicitly supported Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It's um, always, uh, or sort of in the in the last couple of weeks, has has used very diplomatic language, not to to side with Russia, but in terms of the military action, not take much of a stand in in that. And even when we saw the um, the Russian attack on a nuclear power plant in Ukraine last week, China at the UN, I think, was saying sort of, we are generally for nuclear security. So sort of neither explicitly condemning nor supporting Russia's actions. And what's interesting from this morning, the latest updates, is that China has said it will send humanitarian aid to Ukraine. It's the first sign since the conflict began that it's, that it's willing to do that. And it may signal a slight shift in its approach to the war, though it's very difficult to read that from here. And also uh, today, the, the EU has repeated calls for China to use its influence on Russia to stop this. But it really remains to be seen whether it will do that. Certainly, India has come under similar pressure from the US and and the West to explicitly condemn Russia's actions. And so far, it has been very unwilling to do that for what it says are historical reasons. It says that Russia has supported it in in regional disputes, um, sort of in or, or near its territory, India, that is. And it's it's very wary of uh, siding with with the West, with the US and the UK in a in a conflict that it says it doesn't really play any part in and hasn't contributed to. Tom, I, I don't know whether you think there are any incoming uh, impacts on on the military side of this from Western sanctions. Very little from sanctions directly into the military sphere. So the only thing I'd say, just on the back of, of the, the recent discussion in regards to China, is of course they'll be they'll be watching this through the military lens incredibly closely, with a view to aspirations over Taiwan, of course. And it just shows that external assistance is one thing. So providing money and arms and deploying forces to to the aid of a another nation with whom you have a an ally arrangement, but actually. Indigenous forces on their own, in inverted commas, can do incredible harm here. So as China is looking at Taiwan, I mean, first of all, they've got to get across the Taiwan Strait, and then they're going to have to take on the people in in Taiwan who may be able to put up as stiff a resistance as uh, the Ukrainians are. So they'll be looking at this very, very closely. And it's just interesting that there are calls for China to take a greater role in in the world to, to possibly bring this to some sort of conclusion. And actually, We've been saying for a long time that China is seeking to reorder the international architecture and, uh, and the rules-based order and what have you. Well, if they wish to do that, then taking a leading global role in, in bringing this war to an end is probably not a bad way of, of going about it. It's only if, they, if they're thinking that, well, actually, maybe their, their military aspirations for Taiwan might need to be revisited. So it's not, not a bad time to step up in the diplomacy side. So I think it's very interesting one to, one to watch about how the role China are going to play in this crisis as it moves on. Louise, can we just come back to you on the economy? Given the impact on ordinary Russians, given the number of companies pulling out of the country, is it, is it fair to ask the question how long the Russian economy can survive as it is? I mean, obviously, that's a very hard one to answer. And it kind of depends on if there are more sanctions that continue to happen, for example, on oil and gas, as, as we spoke about, um, and also an internal response and how long, how long this goes on. I think so. So the stock market is still shut. So it's been shut uh, since this began. And every day they're updating at 6am on whether that will that will open. So only really once that opens will we know the full impact on their economy. 
that would have to happen really to know essentially how long things can continue for for Russia economically. But so far, I mean, so far it's not not looking great. So one thing that's expected or one thing that's an indication of how their economy will fare is how overseas assets of Russian companies are doing at the moment. And valuations of many of them have declined pretty significantly. So Russia's largest bank, Spurbank, its London listings have have plunged, um, as have gas firm Gazprom. So that's kind of one indication of what could happen once their own stock market opens. But at the same time, Putin has been trying to kind of stem the flow. So there was there was reports that he signed a temporary ban for foreign investors in Russia from selling assets and withdrawing funds over ten thousand dollars. That's to kind of halt the capital flow out of the country so that it props up its own economy more. So he has been trying to trying to do things so that there's less of a hurt to the Russian economy. Um, but I think it's kind of a kind of a wait and see. But as I said, um, at the moment, things aren't aren't great. The ruble, its currency, Russia's currency is also crashing. This morning, it hit a record low against the dollar. And as I was saying earlier, it's kind of, there's a, a huge corporate boycott going on. So, I mean, essentially, no Western company really wants to be seen as having any support towards the invasion in, in Ukraine. Can we give us more of a sense politically of how this is going down in Russia? Theo, I can see you wanting to say something. Well, I think the the economy is already hurting there. It's already in a in a bad way after the sanctions that were brought in over the annexation of Crimea in, in 2014. And even people who follow state TV and get their news from essentially propaganda outlets that are told constantly how, how well Putin is, is managing the country in, in the face of Russian aggression will have noticed that the ruble has gone down, that everything is is more expensive, that the economy is generally going badly. And of course, that is going to be felt massively and or is already being felt massively because these, um, what Louise was saying about these um, Western companies pulling out of Russia or not wanting to be seen to do business there, has a massive impact on, on ordinary Russian people. Like just for example, IKEA closing, that means 15,000 Russians have lost their jobs and there's dozens of dozens of, of companies that that is, is affecting. So unemployment is rising very steeply. And I don't think we've seen that uh, quite yet turn into political anger. Like I said, there have been protests in Russia over the weekend and there have been protests since the invasion started. But I think that would have been people who are opposed to Putin and are opposed sort of ideologically to this rather than people who have who have lost their jobs and are angry more for economic reasons. And also the big political impact that won't be felt necessarily immediately is that people who are opposition-minded and ideologically opposed to the Putin regime but have stayed in Russia sort of with this this idea that their actions can help liberalise the country and sort of opposition journalists and average sort of intellectual young uh, Muscovites and people in, in St. Petersburg are now leaving the country because they're so disgusted by what has happened. They're so worried about the economy or they work in, in businesses or, or cultural sectors that have international links and now basically won't exist in, in Russia. So that means that there are... Uh, huge numbers, thousands and thousands of um, liberal-minded Russians who won't be there anymore and who won't be 
influencing the direction of the country as in as much as that is possible in an authoritarian regime, but sort of won't be changing anything at a, a grassroots level for however long this uh, regime goes on for. So um, it's it's likely politically to be very dark days in, in Russia in, in the near future with this tanking economy and um, this crackdown on, on liberal voices or, f- or fleeing of liberal voices. Thank you very much, Theo. What should we be looking for economically and strategically over the next week? I, I don't know who wants to go first. Dom? Sure. So I think in strategic terms, keep an eye on NATO. Jens Stoltenberg, the Secretary General of NATO, made some very interesting comments over the weekend when he said that uh, that NATO is going to move from deterrence by posture to deterrence by defence. And what, what that means is at the moment in the sort of Baltic states, Estonia, Latvia, Lithuania and Poland, there's the NATO's um, enhanced forward presence mission, which is a limited number of troops from, from across the alliance in those countries acting basically as a tripwire. I mean, they're not there to, to stop hordes of... Well, actually, maybe on this on this showing, maybe they would be able to stop the hordes of Russian armoured columns coming across, but, but that is not their purpose. It was there just to, just to say to Russia, we are serious about this 30-member alliance. Don't try it on, matey boy. But he's now talking about moving from that, that sort of tripwire posture into deterrence by defence, actually beefing it up so that they are, there is a, a, a very credible fighting force there. So rather than just acting as a tripwire, so acting as a, as a firm defensive posture. So I think noises coming out of NATO, exactly as was said before the war started, that Putin is only going to get more NATO on his doorstep if he carries on uh, with this type of um, action. And that's the last thing he wants. So it makes no makes no strategic sense. And the other thing I'd say, uh, tactically, there have been some some noises over the weekend from Russia about uh, U- Ukrainian nuclear plots and dirty bombs and, and what have you. And so I wouldn't be surprised. There have been some commentary. Um, Dmitry Alperovich is a great guy you should be following on Twitter. He was making the point that these these noises unsurprisingly come after Russia's clearly taken the area of Chernobyl and um, uh, late last week took the um, Zaporizhia nuclear plant in the southeast. And so don't be surprised if suddenly some evidence turned up of a Ukrainian plot for a dirty bomb or some sort of nation's nuclear capability to act as a as a crutch for them to, to lean on. So just watch just watch those those two things. Thank you, Dom. Uh, Theo Louise, uh, Theo, do you want to go next? I think probably the thing I'm most interested to look out for now is the change of language coming out of the Kremlin. Because I think, uh, like we were saying at the start of this conversation, um, Moscow for the first time has sort of laid out what it actually apparently wants out of this this conflict and the concessions it, it wants from Ukraine. And it, it seemed to be quite a, a, a massive change from the, the aims it originally set out with. So I think we may see some, we may see further changes from the from the Russian side, and that I think that's the thing to keep an eye out for the next few days. Though obviously a week is a very long time in this, so I can't, I'm not going to make any predictions for next week. And uh, Louise Moon, would you like the final word? Yeah, so economically, um, kind of as, as we've spoken about a lot, I think the main thing to look out for is whether sanctions are going to happen towards energy, towards Russian energy. So the US introduced a bill last week, which is getting fast-tracked through and could lead to sanctions. Um, so that's it's basically a key thing being discussed, and they could even roll that out without the support of the EU as well. So I think that's that's the uh, the big one to watch economically, and then the ripple effects that will have on markets that are already... As I said earlier, energy markets that are already under stress and the prices 
that will impact all of us as well. Um, so that's definitely the big one to watch, I think. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine coverage, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first month free at telegraph.co.uk forward slash audio. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm every day on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter. We are, unsurprisingly, at Telegraph to see what we're up to. If you found this show useful, follow Ukraine The Latest on your podcast app. And you can email us at podcasts at telegraph.co.uk if there's something you think we should be covering or a question you'd like us to answer. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Theodora Ludludis and Louisa Wells. And on Twitter, Sophie Coe.